Good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you to the Digital Cathedral this morning. Glad to have you with me from wherever around the United States of America or ever around the world that you're watching. It's always good. It's always good to hear from people. I, I really enjoy the comments and um, and hearing where you're from. I, I feel very connected to people all all around the world through this ministry that you and I together are a part of. So make. Feel free to make comments. We, uh, in case you didn't know it, on Wednesday night we do a, a Facebook Live where we rehash a little bit of the Sunday morning and take it in some different directions. And we have some fun with it on Wednesday night. I really enjoy Wednesday. I really enjoy Sunday. I feel like we're doing um, some good things on the internet, which was the goal when we started this um, better than a year ago. So. Thank you for being with me this morning. We're, we're going to finish up this short series that we're doing that we've entitled Hell's Illusion. And we've come a long way. I guess this is number, this is number six. So we're finishing up this morning number six. Uh, and this will be the end of the series. We'll move on to something next week. Maybe I'll announce to you a little bit uh, at the end what I would like to do next week in, in uh, kind of in conjunction with all of the, the new stuff that's rolling out and so much revelation that's coming. I want to talk to you a little bit about that next week. Anyway, this, this morning as we finish up, uh, looking back in retrospect, we have covered a lot of ground. And I hope that the ground we've covered, if some of it may still be a little bit not clear totally, or maybe you don't have it all in focus yet. What I wanted to do with this introductory series on Hell's Illusion is introduce you to some things, to some ideas and maybe concepts that you haven't considered before in this area of eternal conscious torment. So looking back, all the things that we've covered, we started by covering the mythological history of hell. We talked about how you and I came into this understanding that we, most of us, all of us carried all of our lives until the spirit of truth began to show us and unveil to us some things. So we covered all of the mythological history of hell. We covered all of the mistranslations of words that uh, were never in the original Hebrew and Greek, but were actually mythological words that were brought and assigned new meanings that, and then plugged into uh, the Latin Vulgate, which led to further uh, scripture translations using the same mistranslations. We've traced every reference of hell in scripture as to context, intent, and audience. We looked at all of those through the scripture. So I've come down to this sixth week, and I just want to say this. I think that what we've done is laid enough foundation that if you were to look at all of the facts, everything that we've presented up to this point, apart from the lens of religion that maybe you have looked at this through in days gone by, if you're just seeking the truth, if you're looking at it analytically, uh, unbiasedly, wanting to uncover what is the factual nature of this thing that has been called eternal conscious torment, if all you look at is the facts, then you have to come to a conclusion, I think, that hell, as it's been pushed by the Western church, is in fact a man-made doctrine that was created to control people, to manipulate, to evangelize. And in some cases, in some religions, it's been used to extort money to get loved ones out of that place to be released from eternal conscious torment. So this last session, I, wanna, I, wanna, I'm, I don't want to look at more 
mistranslated words. I, I don't even want to look at scripture that may lead us to some kind of doctrine of eternal conscious torment because we've covered a lot of those. We've answered a lot of the questions on Wednesday night. What I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to appeal to the spirit of truth that is within you, all right? Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 13, he said, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will lead you into all truth. Now, I want to, I want to ask you a question this morning. Question is this, everything that you know about eternal conscious torment, everything that you know about hell, did the spirit of truth teach it to you or has all of it come through the Bible? Everything that you know about eternal conscious torment, everything you know about hell, has it come through the Bible and those that were teaching you what the Bible said? Or has the spirit of truth, independent of scripture, revealed to you eternal conscious torment? And I, I, I say that because Jesus said that the spirit of truth, not a book, not a book, would lead us into all truth. See, a book can be mistranslated. A book can be abused and misused. A, a, a book can be manipulated around to say what you want it to say. But when the spirit of truth speaks to you, when the spirit of truth leads you into truth, then you know that you know that you know. Now, I'll tell you what my experience is. My experience is everything that I ever, I, I ever knew about hell, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, certainly didn't reveal it to me apart from the Bible. There are a lot of things spirit of truth has led me to. A lot of the things I've, I've learned about grace, that I've learned about unconditional love, that I've learned about um, uh, the Father, has come not because I read it in the Bible. It's come purely by the Spirit. The Spirit of truth has unveiled. My eyes have opened up. Can you relate to that? Are there things that your eyes you have simply awakened to? It wasn't that somebody taught you necessarily. It wasn't that you read it in the Bible. It was because the Holy Spirit showed you. And I, what, I, what I've been pondering on this week is the fact that the Spirit of truth never taught me or showed me anything about hell. Everything I learned about hell came because of uh, the lens that I read Scripture through. I, did not, I didn't know. I didn't know for over 50 years that there were words that were mistranslated. I didn't know that there were things taken out of context. I had no idea that Jesus never used the word hell. He used the word Gehenna and what that meant and what the metaphor was and what Jesus was really relating to the Jews. I didn't know any of that. Spirit of truth never taught me anything about uh, people that would suffer eternally in, in literal flames of fire. So I just want to talk to you uh, 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 and appeal to the spirit of truth. And what I want us to think about, I want the spirit of truth this morning to unveil to you what a real father is like. What, what a good father really is all about. Because that's really what this boils down to. How good is God? How good, how good is this father that Jesus revealed to us? How good is this father that, that Jesus fully reflected and manifested in the flesh? What what is, a, what is a good father really like? I used, to, I used to think about that. I used to ponder on that. I used to meditate that. I think James caught it. James learned from Jesus what a good father's all about. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James said this. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and, come down, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there aren't variations. There's no variables of turning, no shadow of turning. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So <clears throat> uh, what, what James picked up from Jesus as Jesus reflected the Father in verse 17 is that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now that, that begins to unveil to us uh, what the Father is like. A loving Father that is fully committed to his offspring, a loving father that is fully committed to his children. Over here, let's say this is, the, that, let's say this is that good God over here. This is the good father over here that, that James said every good gift comes from him, every good impartation comes from him. We got him over here. And then we have this idea of eternal conscious torment over here. Let, let me just tell you, the, the father that cares for his offspring, that is totally committed to them, and this idea over here of eternal conscious torment, I, I submit to you, they, can't, they cannot exist in the same universe. They, they cannot exist together. Now, it's grace that led me personally. I don't know what grace all grace has led you to, but one of the things that grace began to wear into me and burn into me is a personal revelation of the fatherhood of God, And I'll tell you what, when I, when I began to list down, and there were days I would sit in my office, I, I may have shared this with you, and I would just take a legal pad and I would just write down the characteristics of a good father. And I'm going to share five of those with you this morning. I just would start listing out the characteristics of, of a father, of a good father, and that was full of grace, that was full of truth, that was full of love, that was full of mercy. I just began to write down everything that a good father was. And that began to open my eyes up and begin to challenge me in other areas of my believing, other areas in my theology. And this idea of eternal conscious torment was one of them. It was about, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, I began to study it out a little bit. I began to get some glimpses and some ideas that, wait a minute, this, these two, the, the, a father, a father who is fully committed and dedicated to his children in the idea of throwing them into a, a, an oven, a furnace full of flames and letting them twist and burn and cry forever. That, that, just, is, that just did not compute. And I began to, to study it out. And at first I go, man, this is, this is uh, you know, a mainline thing of the church. So I, I'm not, I must be off here. I must be an errand. I just let it cook and I just let it, let it go for a while. But, it, but this idea of the fatherhood of God changed, changed me drastically. It began to change how I see other people. It began to, 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 to change how I, how I saw myself, how I saw circumstances, how I saw all the events that were unfolding in my life, uh, how I saw eternity. And what it did, <clears throat> the more I thought about what a good father is, it, what grace took me to, the more I, the more I meditate, more I pondered it, the, the, the more I began to, to trust and have a rest in him that I had never known in over 50 years of being a Christ follower. And I'm just telling you the truth. I, I was a striver. I was a worker. You know, I wanted one day to stand before him and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a, a few things. I make you, you know, king over many things. I, that, was the, that was the end game of all that we did. But I began to see the Father in an entirely different light. And that's what grace took me to. When I began to see that grace was truly a divine influence that affected effortless change in me. And all I did was trust and rest in Him. And the changes took place. I began to see how good He really was. 
The Apostle Paul saw how good he really was. I think that might be one of the things that, that formed Paul's theology was the goodness of God. When he, when he talked to, over in Acts chapter 17, turn over there with me. When Paul's talking to these idol worshipers over in Acts chapter 17, these people were a million miles away from being what evangelical church would call born-again, spirit-filled, tongue-talking believers. They were idol worshipers. And Paul, Paul extends out and begins to tell them how good the Father really is. And he says in Acts chapter 17 in verse 26, and he says to these idol worshipers, now look, look how he puts himself, there's no them and us that you're, you're out and I'm in. There's no normal evangelistic message that Paul comes with. Instead, he says this, that God has made one blood of every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he isn't far from any of us. Now watch what he said in verse 28. He's saying to these idol worshipers, he's putting himself with them, he's relating to them, and by relating to them, he's bringing God into the scene, and he says, for it's in him that we live. Idol worshipers and me both. It's in him we, we, we. He makes no division here. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring, right? Now that's, that's contrary to tradition. That's contrary to everything that you and I traditionally learned about what it means to be a child of God and how good God is, how good of a father that he is. We were raised to believe that he's a good father only to those that prayed the prayer, were following him, seeking him with their whole heart, uh, humbled themselves and prayed and sought his face, continually pushed into his presence. To those he may pour out favor and grace and would reveal, reveal himself as a good father. So this last session, what I want to do, <clears throat> I, I want to tip the balance over in your psyche for you to see that there is no possible way that a good, caring father reflected in the life of Jesus and this place of eternal conscious torment, if it's real, there's no way that they could exist in the same universe. Apart from words that were translated wrong, Apart from all of the mythology that snuck its way into, this, into the Bible, just on the basis of fatherhood, being a father that is, that is good beyond your wildest imaginations, just on the basis of that, hell, as it's been ground into our psyche, it, I don't have any way to say it except it's a lie. It is just not true. If God is truly the perfect Father who loves us and longs to be intimately connected to us, to all of his offspring, as Paul said, is it even remotely possible? Let me just appeal to the spirit of truth that's in you this morning. Let me appeal to your common sense and your reason. If, if the Father is really like that, is it even remotely possible that he is going to take the largest percentage of those that he has created and stamped with his image and likeness, is it even remotely possible that he will take and lock them eternally in a fire dungeon? If he would do that, then that would show that, say to me that I, as a mere human, as one of his offspring that carry his image and his likeness, that I love more than he does. That I have more mercy and forgiveness than what he possesses. And I want to tell you something, that ain't the case. That's just not the case. If, if, if in fact, 
he said love never fails. And if in fact that his mercy endures forever. So if it ever fails or runs out for one person, when he said that it never does, doesn't that make him a liar and some kind of con artist? And if we can't trust him with that, can we trust him with anything? If he said, my love never fails and my mercy never ends, it endures, and, and we can't trust him with that. If we find in the final analysis that his love does fail, and he takes 90% of all of his creation and throws them into an eternal conscious torment, then he's been a con artist. He's been a liar to us. Now let me just follow that up real quickly and say, look, my father's not a liar. He's not a con artist. So what I want, want to really look at this morning, I'm just appealing to your reason, to your logic. I'm appealing, I want the spirit of truth that is within you, apart from the mistranslated words, apart from the scripture, apart from everything, mythological history, apart from everything that we've stacked up, the preponderance of evidence, forget that. I'm just appealing to your reason this morning. How does a good father care for all of us? How does a father protect all of us? How does a father provide for all of us? As human parents, we get just a little smidgen of that. You know, if you're, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you, you just get a little dose of the love of God that you have for your children. It's a little insight into the love that he has for us, what he feels for us that bear his image and likeness. Those of us, we, we carry his DNA around. We are his offspring, Paul said. And Paul, Paul followed that up in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. See, I, I, to really look at a good father, you've got to realize everybody's his offspring. Everybody is his child. There's nobody outside that circle. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6, and I don't know how many gazillion times I've read this, <clears throat> because we, we in religion still have this mentality of I'm in and you're out, I'm saved, you're lost, I've got it, you don't, you don't have it. So Paul, Paul made it so plain in Ephesians 4, 6, when he said, there is one God and Father of all. Father of all. Not just creator or God of all. Father of all. Who is above all. Who is through all and is in all. So he, I, to, the first thing you can say, and this isn't one of my five points, but look, you need to understand that he's the father of everybody. He takes responsibility for everybody. He takes care for those, all of those that he brought into the earth. So how does, how does a father react to us? How does a good father make us feel secure? All right, let me give you five things this morning. These are five of the things that I used to list down and think about and ponder about, meditate about. One of the things that I, I, I thought about a good father is this. Number one, this is number one. I'm going to give you five. Number one, a loving father only intends good for his children. There's no good father that, that has a bad intention or a bad thought or a bad end game for a child if he has power to make it come well. And Jesus taught us in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and, and verse 11. Look at this. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. You know, we're not perfect. I think Jesus is kind of overdoing it there when he says, if you being evil, he's, he's drawing a contrast here between us as humans and how good the Father is. He's saying, if you as, as humans that fall short, you're not perfect. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and what parent doesn't like to give a good gift to their child? What parent is there among us that, that doesn't get a high on Christmas morning when you come down and your children begin to open presents? 
Yeah, you might have sacrificed all year long. You might have had some of those things in layaway and paid a little bit on them, but you wanted that Christmas morning to be extra special for your child because you enjoyed watching them open the gifts more than they actually enjoyed opening them. That's because of your love for them, right? So if you know how to do that, he says, how much more? He's, he's letting us know how, how loving God is. He's letting us see that a loving God only intends good for his children. There's no, there's no thought of batting God in the Father. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things, an abundance of good things, to those that ask him? No parent, no good parent, no good father would ever allow anything to ruin their child's lives on a long-term basis, you know, in, in addition to gifts. But on a long-term basis, when you have a child, you do anything to make sure it all comes out good for them. We'll, we'll give anything. We'll go to no limits. We'll go to no extreme to make sure that our children will be successful. I, I've seen parents sacrifice, go without themselves to make sure that the children have what they need to have. You know, intending, now when you intend good at times, that doesn't always mean there's no discipline and no correction. Absolutely there is. That's, the child doesn't like it. But the parent's wisdom looks ahead to what the end result will be. And on that basis, it always lets love guide them in discipline and correction. Do you think God the Father would ever intend long-term for us those that carry his DNA, that he would ever intend anything but good for us. Even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah saw it. Look at this, Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Let me just, let me just read this for you. They, they, they even caught it in the Old Covenant, although they didn't express it sometimes. They didn't, didn't always reveal the Father that, or the God that Jesus revealed as Father. Do you remember even when Jesus taught the disciples to pray? He said, here's how I want you to pray. And this is pre-cross, pre-cross. He said, I want you guys to pray our Father. He didn't say, I want you guys to pray our God. He brought it into a place of relationship. He was, he was saying to them, you are God's offspring. All right? we, we think nobody is, it becomes a child of God until after the cross. That's not the case. Everybody that has ever been created is a child of God. And that God, that Father, only intends good for us. Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah chapter 29 and, and verse 11. Let me just read a couple of verses. This is God speaking. He said, I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, this is, this is, this is a, the heart of a loving father coming out here. That you will call upon me and go and pray and I'll listen to you. And you'll seek me and find, when you search me with your old heart. Now listen to verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place for which I cause you, 
to be carried into captivity. In other words, God says, all of the things that have been negative in your life, because I love you so much, I'm going to take any of those good things because my intent for you is good. It's not for evil. It's to have a hope and a future. So I'm looking at you long-term child, and you have gotten yourself into a mess. But you just hang on because daddy's coming. I'm going to bring you back out of all of that mess, back into the place and the position that you should have occupied the whole time. Why? Because I am a loving father. The father has such infinite knowledge. I mean, he knows the end from the beginning perfectly. Because he knows the end from the beginning, whatever he says in the beginning will be the way it is at the end. So when he says, when he looks at you, very good. When he created you, he looked and said, very good. That was at the beginning. Now, it would be no different at the end because he knows the end from the beginning. He didn't say when he created us in his image and likeness and said, well, I hope it turns out well. We'll see how it all shakes out. That's not the way a loving father did it. The loving father said, here's, here's how it's going to come down. Here's how it's going to break down. Here's how the bottom line is going to read. It's all going to end up very good because that's the way that I started it. All right, number two. A loving father makes sure that any discipline or punishment fits the crime, right? Any discipline, a loving father makes sure that any discipline or punishment fits the crime. Can you imagine punishing your 10-year-old <clears throat> for the rest of his life, calling your 10-year-old and said, in and say, look, you know, you took cookies out of the cookie jar. And do you remember that cookie jar? I remember that cookie jar. I remember I could never put the lid down. See if you can relate to this. I could never put the lid down without it clanging. I could pull the top off of the cookie jar. You know, my mother would be in another part of the house. I'd pull the top off that cookie jar. My mom always made a lot of baked goods and cookies. I could pull that chocolate chip cookie out. But when I went to put the top on, no matter how hard I tried, it would always clang. And mom would, without, without every time, hear it. And she would say, get out of the cookie jar. You're going to spoil your supper. Right? Now, can you imagine if that night at dinner, my parents had said, look, you know, you've never repented for stealing those cookies. Your mama baked those. You didn't ask permission to get one. You're 10 years old. Now, what we've done, we've packed up all your clothes in a suitcase because you have not had a, a, a repentant heart about those cookies. So we've set all your stuff out on the porch and you're, you're done with this. We're, this family's done with you. We, we're saying depart from us. We never knew you. You no longer have the family name. You're on your own little 10-year-old guy, right? That, no one would do that. that. That punishment does not fit taking cookies out of the cookie jar. Or how about this? I bet none of you ever did this. You, you, you're getting ready for school and you saw $2 sitting on the dining room table. It wasn't your $2? With somebody else's two dollars, probably your mom or your dad, and you took the two dollars, put it in your pocket, and you bought yourself and all your friends candy on the way to school, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine you, you coming home at night and your parents totally setting you out of the family? Look, can can you imagine punishing your ten-year-old that way for a short season of? Rebellion. You know what the father does? You know what a loving father does? A loving father looks behind the disobedience for determining factors, right? If you have a toddler that didn't get his nap in 
And that toddler is cranky and disrespectful and throws a fit because you know the reason for that is they did not have a nap time or maybe they don't feel well. Do you, do you take that toddler that has been disrespectful to you? You know, I, little toddlers say crazy things. Sometimes they'll tell mom and dad they hate them. They hate them because they're being disciplined. Can you imagine taking that toddler because they didn't have a nap, they've been grumpy and disrespectful, and putting them out in the unheated garage for the winter and not giving them any food? You say, well, that, that's child abuse. Well, that's the way we, that's what we have designed to the Father. We have, we have said this thing of eternal conscious torment for which there could never be any action of a human being in 70 or 80 years. I don't care how atrocious, I don't care how perverted. There is no action a human could commit in 70 or 80 years that would, that would be a just punishment of an eternity without end of torture. A good father, the, the punishment always fits the crime. Now, does that mean that, he, that a good father never disciplines, that he never takes us to task? Of course it does. He's, he's, he's a good father. Look what it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read verses 9, 10, and 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more really be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us. For a few days. A, a set time. Because a good father always knows, you know, it's going to be one spanking because you lied to your mother and you, you know, or whatever you did. But you don't get beat endlessly day after day, right? It's for a set time. It fits the punishment. The punishment fits the crime. He chastens us as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening, it says in verse 11, is joyful in the present time, it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, the end, the end of a good father's correction is always restoration. It is always bringing back into. It is not driving away from. Even during the time of the correction, you're still part of. He never sets you outside of. All right, now let me, let me finish it up with, with, verse, uh, with verse 11. Now, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, right? Painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained for, for it. So a good father, a good father, a loving father makes sure that any discipline, you know, any punishment, it would seem to us punishment, any discipline, the length of it and the intensity of it always fits the crime. Now, does that, that mean we'll never find ourselves in the pig pen eating? Well, you may find yourself there of your own volition in the pig pen. That might happen because sin pays a wage. But even then, even then, the most hardened, rebellious child will learn that the mercy of the father always triumphs over judgment. Always. In Psalm 103, in uh, verse 9, David had a great insight about this. Psalm 103, in verse 9. I'm just appealing to your better senses this morning. We've kind of looked, we've laid up the evidence over here, kind of like we were in a legal court for, for five weeks. Not a day, I'm just telling you, look, we got a good daddy. We got a good father, and there's no way that he is going uh, in his character. It, there's no way 
uh, as a father that this idea that we've carried for 1,500 years, wasn't the first 500 years, if you remember the history, first 500 years, this thing wasn't in the church, just a good news message. Six schools of theology, five of them were um, ultimate reconciliation schools of theology in the early church. But I've just been appealing to you, and I want the spirit of truth to unveil your eyes to how good the Father really is, and for you to see that it, there's no way these two can ever coexist together. Now watch what David said in Psalm 103, verse 9. <clears throat> Psalm 103, verse 9. It says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He, he has dealt with us according to our sins. He, oh, I'm sorry. He has not dealt with us. That's a, that's a big change. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those that love him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows, he knows you inside and out. He knows what makes you tick, right? So the Whenever he disciplines us, it's to bring us, it's to conform us to the image of the Son. All right, number three. Here's the third thing I want you to know about a loving father that makes this whole idea of hell and eternal conscious torment absolutely ridiculous. A loving father demonstrates a fair and consistent behavior. He teaches us by example. You know, a good father, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If you're, if you're a boy, most of us emulate our father when we grow up. I mean, our fathers unconsciously impart a lot to us. And we have a good father in heaven. And he always portrays to us a consistent example. That's what Jesus came to show us. A consistent example. He isn't, he isn't love one day and then he turns around the next day and he's, he's hostile toward us. He doesn't accept us with open arms one day and then tomorrow just totally turns his back on us. He treats, he, his treatment of us is consistent. It is always love. It is always forgiveness. It is always compassion. His, his mercies are new every morning. In fact, uh, the writer of Acts in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, and I'm, I'm not going to get to it this morning, but this came after a real struggle for Peter because Peter thought spiritually, religiously, he was pretty superior. Uh, but in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, he finally came to the conclusion, and this is a great conclusion to come to, Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and he said, In truth I perceive that God, listen, the Father shows no partiality. He does not favor one sibling over another. Now Peter thought he was special. If you read back in that 10th chapter, <clears throat> I'm gonna, I think I might get into this next week, but in that 10th chapter, Peter's up on the roof praying and these foods come down on a blanket and they're unclean. Peter says, I can't have that. I'm just a good Jewish guy. And uh, the father tells him, look, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean. So he, that's how he was looking at Gentiles. He was looking at himself as being superior, like God favored him, that the, that the actions of God were not consistent for everybody, that God loved the Jews, but he had this thing for the Gentiles that wasn't so loving. 
And so, and so the father had to show him, no, wait a minute. I'm always consistent to everyone. Peter thought he was special. John thought that Jesus loved him the most. You know what the truth is? The truth is we're all special. <laughs> the truth is he loves all of us the most. Yeah, there, there are times that he's going to break through in your life. And he's going to show you just how special you are. There are going to be times in your life he breaks through and you're going to see that he loves you more than anybody else. You're, he's going to make you feel that special because he's a good father. He's a good father. There's no room for sibling rivalry. There's no room for us looking at others that God has created and say we're above them or we're better than them. Because God, we, we, when in demonstrating the character, the love of God, we can demonstrate a father. We can emulate a father who is always consistent by example in his behavior toward us. And this is so, so important because, you know, this idea that God loves us unconditionally until you die. And when you die, all of a sudden, this love turns into a hate and an anger and uh, uh, some kind of judicial reality where you stand in a court. He runs a video of your life up and points out every wrong that you've made and then says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's not a consistent behavior. There's no, no sibling rivalry. The judgment that we place on other people, you know why we judge other people? Because we see, we have, we're emulating a father that we think judges. We think a father has a them and us family, but they're not family, but you are if you do what, I, what I've told you to do. You know, you're, we, th we think God is going to judge. You made it, you didn't make it. We don't understand the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so we, we think, you know, we're the sheep we're in. And he's telling the goats, get out into everlasting punishment. But when you understand that the, that, the, that, the, that the behavior of the father is always consistent to every person, he shows no partiality. You know what? All of a sudden, when you begin to, when you begin to understand that, it begins to seep into your life and you start living the example of the father, all of that judgment evaporates into, an, into a universal acceptance of everybody because we are now secure in our love of the Father. What made us judgmental is we were not secure. When you know you're loved and he pours grace on you, you can love and pour grace on somebody else. The Father is consistent in the way that he acts. We're the ones that have portrayed him as some kind of schizo who can't be relied on. I mean, Jesus, part of what Jesus reflected is this. Jesus is the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same tomorrow. If that was the way Jesus was, and guess what? In his full reflection of the Father, God, that's how the Father is also. Jesus didn't act one way, and the Father act another way. Which we've kind of made God that way. We've taken a God of the Old Testament where they only had partial revelation, saw through a glass dimly, saw through it darkly, attributed to God a lot of things that were not of God because they didn't know where else to place it. Like hurricanes and tornadoes today, we, there are still those that call those acts of God. Those are not acts of God. But we don't know what else, we don't know what bin to throw it in. So because it's beyond our control, then it must be God. So we call tornadoes and hurricanes and floods acts of God. They're no more acts of God than the Old Testament where they wrote down that God said to go into the city and kill all the men, the women, the children, the animals. That was not God. That was, that was man not knowing how, what to do with it. So he laid it off on a supernatural power greater than himself. 
a loving father demonstrates consistency in his behavior to every offspring. He treats us all equally without partiality. All right, number four. Number four, a loving father ultimately longs to be restored in relationship. What parent does not want to be in relationship to their child? Even, even when you have a wayward child, your heart desires, it longs to be reconciled. And so that's what God has done for us. He has bridged every gap. He has, he has taken his creation uh, every step toward his creation. He's initiated every action. He's exercised everything he can do so that he can stand back and say, the restoration with all of my creation is complete. It never was incomplete from God's side. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, for example, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He didn't need to be reconciled to the world. He's a good father. And his heart always longed for us to feel that the bridge had been uh, uh, that the bridge had been crossed, that the chasm had been breached, that we were in fact reconciled to him. So he wanted to make sure that he told us that he was in Christ reconciling, bringing all of us back to himself in our consciousness. Romans 5.10 says that even, we, even when we were enemies with God, this is how much he wants all men reconciled. Even when we were enemies with God, in that condition, in that state, this is how a loving father acts. Even when we were enemies, he reconciled us to himself. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, even when we were wicked, alienated in our minds because of wicked works, he stepped in, didn't encounter our sins against us and reconciled us back to himself. So what did Jesus unveil in the, in the parable of the, of the uh, prodigal son? He unveiled this very thing, that a loving parent, come on, don't you as parents? Some of you may have children that you're a little bit estranged from and it hurts. It burdens you. And you long for the day when that relationship would be restored. You still love, but you're waiting for that wayward one. Maybe rebellion or, you know, they're off into whatever. But that's not your heart. And that's not the heart of the father either. So Jesus unveils the heart's desire of the father for reconciliation when he talks about the prodigal son. And we see the father in the story of the prodigal son and he never dis disowned the son. But every day he would look out to the horizon, looking, hoping, waiting for that son to appear. The son was never lost to the father in the story. It was the son who felt lost to the father and felt separated from the father and felt unworthy of the father's love. But the father's love toward the son was always present and always being poured out. It was, it was not ever set aside no matter how long it took. The father didn't say, well, I'm going to give this 24 months. And if he doesn't come back home, if he doesn't come to his senses, I'll tell you what, that's the end of the story. I'm writing him out of the will. I'm putting him out of the family. And I will, to me, he will be as good as dead never came into that situation as a father. And Jesus, through this story, is telling us that, that no matter how long it takes, do you, do you think that father, in the, in, the, in the parable that Jesus told, do you think that father would have burned his son in flames if instead of 24 months, it took 25 months, or 26, or 48, whatever the father... Because he rejected the father's love. Because he made a, you know, a, a free will decision to leave home, take his inheritance, live in rebellion, 
Do you think the father would have ever mistreated him? Of course not, because the heart of a father, my fourth point, the heart of a father is always for reconciliation with the wayward child, no matter how long it takes. So here's the truth of the parable. The father loves, always loves, until the son awakens to who he actually is. The father never put a time limit. Our father never puts a time limit on us recognizing that we're tired of eating in the pig pit that my dad's heart is always for me to be home, always to be included, always to be involved, always to be part of the family. And he has never let that go, right? Number five, fifth thing about a real father is that a real father, a loving father never gives up. I don't think we have realized the double standard that we've set to the world and, and the way we sound to the world when we tell them that God loves them unconditionally. Yet if they don't pray the prayer before they die, then suddenly that unconditional love turns into anger and turns into judgment. And the end of unconditional love will be that you are cast into a, a eternal hell. I don't think we understand uh, just how double-minded that sounds to the world. The world wants nothing to do with a father like that. I would, not, I would want nothing to do with a natural father that would turn on me that way. I would probably willingly leave home and never call, never go back again. And many have done that because of the presentation of the church, not letting them know that a loving father never gives up, that he's always standing right there. Didn't Paul tell those idol worshipers, he's not far from any of us. He's not far from any of us. In fact, he's closer than your next breath. No loving, natural parent would ever give up on their child. How how dare we? How dare we strap that idea onto a perfect father? We, re we really should be ashamed of the PR, the public relations that the church has given to love himself to the world. To those sons yet that are out there still in the pig pen that don't know who they are, have no clue about it, are disillusioned by the a false concept of a father that will turn on them one day. Listen to this, Romans chapter 8. I, I'm starting to unwind right now. I'm starting to conclude this. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. You, you know the scripture, verse 38. It says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. He's, he's trying to cover the street as much as possible. And he's saying, here's the heart of my father. He's never going to give up. Doesn't matter what comes into your life, whether it's death or life. Even death. You get this? Do you see that in the verse? I'm persuaded. Let me just put leave death there. I'm persuaded that death shall never be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We have never presented that image of the Father to the world. A Father that never gives up at death. We've said death is the end of the story. Listen, love knows no end of the story. Reconciliation knows no end to the story. And Paul said, even in death, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's a good parent and a good father. A good father never gives up. God is love. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, everything is said and done. It's all over. The thing, the one thing that will still be standing is love. So let me just appeal to you this morning. Would you ever turn your back on your children and reject them? 
Would you ever reject your child because they did not meet some stipulation that you laid down for acceptance? Neither will the Father in heaven. Neither will the Father in heaven. Love never fails. Love never quits. No matter how long it takes for love to win, love will be the overcoming factor at the end of the day. When I, when I think of the bond that we have just with our natural children, when I think of the bond that I feel with my grandchildren, it's virtually impossible for us to give them a part of ourselves that we've, you know, our offspring that we've given a part of ourselves to, they carry our, our characteristics around. It's, it, it would be awfully hard for us to ever separate ourselves from them for eternity, no matter what the cost or sacrifice to us would be. Same thing with the Father. He never intends to give up. He gave us a part of himself. We're his creation. We're stamped in his image and his likeness. We carry his DNA. So his answer is this. It never was. It, in, it isn't nor will it ever be my intent to damn anybody. But in fact, my intent at the end was set in the beginning, which is for regeneration and restoration for all of my children. All right, we're going to shut that series down right there. We've gone six weeks. We've laid out all the factual evidence on the illusion of hell. Today, I hope you've seen how good the father is and that a, a, a father that carries those five, five little factors I gave you and the idea of a, a hell that awaits one who doesn't love and accept, those two cannot exist in the same universe. We've created it, not God. The father would never create such a place for any of us. All right, let's talk a little bit more on Wednesday night. Next Sunday morning, here's what I want to do next Sunday morning. Let's, God changes my mind. There's so much revelation flowing into the, to the body of Christ. So much new, new things we're seeing. Even this six-week series, I know really stretched a lot of you. Maybe brought to you some, some things you never thought about. Maybe, I know a lot of you watching have never even considered the idea there's no hell. So next Sunday morning, I want to, I want to talk about how do you make a spiritual transition in your life? How, when you hear something, do you know if it's true? How, how can you begin to, to eat the hay and spit out the sticks? All right. So let's talk next week about a spiritual transition because I think you need to know how to make a move in your life when God begins to bring revelation. Fair enough? All right, we'll see you next Sunday morning. See you Wednesday night, 8 o'clock Central Standard Time on my Facebook page for Wednesday Night Live. God bless you. Till next time.